Jack presented with us when he gave us the theme, he talked about two key words and that describe our vocation as believers, and they were the words worship and witness, our worship and our witness. And our worship is our supplication, our heartfelt prayers before God, intercession. Our worship is our celebration like we're doing here today, right now, the celebration of God's people together. And it's our adoration of King Jesus, our majesty and our king. That's our worship. And the direction of worship is upward. It's toward God, towards God. But there's another word, and that's our witness. And our witness goes this way. It goes to one another and to others. And so we don't really have a lot of time to just go all about me, right? We're so busy with this and this, that's our vocation. And that's going to keep you strong as a believer. That's going to keep you growing if you have your focus. So we're going to talk about our witness. We know that it is our declaration of our faith and our testimony. It's the good news of the gospel that we share right here, right now, and wherever we can out in our world. And our witness is the transformation, the evidence that our life has changed. I get really cringy looking at myself on the screen, watching my mouth move and go, oh my goodness. But my testimony is that I, after that invitation, my life was transformed. I was changed. I became a different person and it it was apparent to my family, to my friends at school and everyone around me that my life was changed. And so that witness is our testimony, that transformation of our lives. And then our witness also includes the demonstration of God's love to the world around us. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So today, this morning, we're going to talk about this witness and I'm going to talk about it in maybe yet another realm and I pray and we'll pray in just a moment that God will just open our eyes to something that's so precious and real. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much to be together, to be in your presence, to have this opportunity to be under your word. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to the word, and we pray, Lord, that you would just bring it to our hearts, bring it into our minds, transform us today by the power of your word, and make us a different people. Let us go from here more like Jesus. That's our prayer, more like Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we established that God is, his kingdom is coming through us. The presence of Jesus is coming through us. So who is the us we are talking about? Are we talking about a plural us? Or we talk like, you know, royalty us (laughs) as a singularity? Well, both are true. So I'm going to ask the question, it's the title of my message, who are you? Who are you? When you meet somebody, or they meet you, um, what do we usually say? Oh, how are you? Or pleased to meet you. Did you do that during the greeting time? Say, how are you? Pleased to meet you. Good to see you. And then if you have a little bit more conversation and you're getting to know each other, what do we usually next say? And what do you do? What do you do? Because we, we identify ourselves by what we do. So I'm a school teacher. Um, I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. I'm what I am, the, you know, by what we do, that's how we identify ourselves. But we have to ask it on a deeper level and in a certain context that I, I want to share with you. 
we got to look at it at a different perspective, and it's a perspective as the way that God sees us. So let me just share from my own perspective what I'm trying to bring across, and you would have the same similar kind of list to, to go from. So the first thing is, and you'll see a common thread. See if you can pick it out. I'm a daughter. I'm a woman. Got that straight. A sister, a wife, <laughs> a mother, a grandmother. I'm a mother-in-law to three beautiful uh, children that my children have married. Or, I am a friend, and I'm a neighbor, and Jesus defined neighbor as anyone whom God causes me to have attention towards. So I'm a friend, I'm a neighbor. Ah, and this is something else. I am in Christ. I have been made a child of God, and my sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. I've been born again by the power of God from the Holy Spirit. I've been transformed, therefore... I'm a new person. I'm a new creation as well. I have a new life. I am a servant of God and of his people. I am a member of the body of Christ globally and locally. I have a purpose that God wants me to fulfill in the earth, and I make use of the gifts he has given me to do that. So there's a common thread through all of these things that I've listed, and maybe you have a list as well. I think you do, if you think about it that way. And the common thread is who am I in the terms of a relationship? All the things I listed there are, this is who I am in terms of who I am related to and how I relate to them. We're not this singularity, you know, this standalone entities. We are in relationship. That's who we are. This is, this is where we should define ourselves. Amen? Amen. There's a common thread. In Colossians 3, verse 2 talks about how that we get a clarity that we need to have. And this is it. It says, look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See, see things from his perspective. So we get wisdom when we look and see what's going on around Jesus. What's he doing in this world? And let's care for the things that are him and how we relate to that. Now, there is a modern-day melody called individualism not the individual individuals are precious but individualism is taking the importance and the rights of the individual to such an extreme that it is you know divorced from the context of who we are together i call it a cult of individualism i just coined that but um, we can be affected by it because it's so mainstream, we might not hardly even notice or recognize that it's there. But we have to take care all the time that we don't let worldly values and worldly mindsets seep into our, our minds and into our church life. And that individualism is not kingdom culture. It doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. So God loves us as individuals, but he loves us as the collective the collection of the, the body of Christ, the people of God. And God has the ability to hold this in perfect tension in his way he sees us. He sees us in great detail and loves us deeply, and I'll go into some of that. But he also broadly sees us, um, and that seems to me from what I see in the weight of Scripture, as important, if not more important. Okay. So... There's a quote I put up on the screen from John Wesley. It says, The Bible knows nothing of solitary faith. 
So we don't go it alone as believers. We're to do this together. That's God's plan for us. But the quote is attributed to Wesley, but it was actually attributed to someone who spoke to Wesley. And it just became part of his uh, teaching. And the story goes like this. So you know who John Wesley was. He's the founder of the Methodist Church, which was a revival movement in the Anglican Church that transformed lives, that caused true discipleship to have real connection in the body of Christ to occur. It was a great move of God in that day. And so the, his story goes, I met a serious man. Whoever this serious man is, he is anonymous to us now, but I'll tell you what, we owe him a lot of credit. Who said to him, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven? Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And that so touched his heart and moved his heart that it affected the rest of his ministry and life on earth. That, and we have visited Wesley, the Wesley compound in London years ago, and his house still stands, the chapel, beautiful chapels there. But his house, uh, very modest chambers for himself and a prayer room that was very special that we got to go in there and kneel and pray. But all the floors of this house, and it's what, four, five stories, four stories? Quite tall building, were rooms where they gathered and they taught church planters and they taught people to become disciples of Jesus Christ and they did it together in the context of a smaller group. They had a large church building, but they had this smaller group concept that brought such togetherness and brought such life to their faith. So you know where I'm going with this, right? It's about together. It's about the context of one another. And so this is, this is a uh, thing that's been right from the beginning, you know, of Christianity. And so solitary and solitude are two different things. We need solitude sometimes. We need to get alone with God and nothing else. No distractions, no phones, no anything. And just be with God, be still with God. But to be solitary, that's different. And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy. Um, and it leads to individualism. But not all cultures think like that. And those of you that maybe come from another culture or have traveled to another culture, you can notice that. Right here in Australia, our indigenous people, when they, if you ever seen someone um, hurt been in person or maybe on the TV and they, they'll stand up and they'll say their clan. That's their first identity. I am a proud Darug man. You know, before they say anything else. And I am this and I am that. There's this identity with the collective of one another. I don't know if any of us would say, I am a proud Penrithian from Glenmore Park. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you know, we've come up in the world, haven't we, in the last three decades? We really have come in. Even, you know, in biblical culture, you see this whole identity with one another. Paul was making a, a point, and in Romans 11, first, verse 1, he said, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, he had a lot of credentials, Paul did. You know, he could say, who are you? Oh, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm this and this. But first of all, he identified with the people that he was a part of. So individualism, self-focus, that's not new. That started back in the Garden of Eden. I think what is new, though, is today the lid is off. You know, there's like there's just cast off restraint. It's all the me culture. It's all my self-focus culture. Um, 
There's an absence of responsibility, no requirements or demands, but this is nothing for the kingdom of God. Or you might prefer the solitary life because of emotional pain in the past. And some people want that life because they've chosen to withdraw because that's easier. I'd like to read or read the lyrics to you, but I don't have time to do it all. But in the 1960s, the duo Simon and Garfunkel wrote the song, I am a rock, I'm an island. And it was being the fact that they had separated, he had separated himself. And he said, I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship because friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock, I'm an island. I touch no one and no one touches me. I'm a rock, I'm an island. And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. So, you know, that's not the life. That's not what God's called us to. He's called us to the context of the family of God and the believers together and the encouragement that it brings. So if maybe you found yourself on the outer fringes of church life or anything like that, we invite you. Come closer. We invite you. Just make a step there. Maybe you need to show up to the welcome party, get welcomed all over again. I don't know what you need to do, but you need to do something. Individualism is the, the cult of self. You and you alone control your own destiny. Every man for himself. I got to look out for number one. You do you. <laughs> I did it my way. You know, this is the whole thing. But none of those things will draw us closer to God or even to one another. Philippians 2 verse 21 says, most people around here are looking out for themselves with little concern for the things of Jesus. It happened in Paul's day. It happens all the time. But you know, how does God see the individual? He sees us very, very precious before him. And he sees every person as a unique creation of God, every person valued by God and having intrinsic work. He knows the, the details of our very heads, you know, the hairs and numbers on our heads and every thought that's in our heart. Every person is loved by God, and that's the reason he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, because all have sinned. We're all equal there. All have sinned, and we're all in need of the Savior. Every person has a free will and can choose to respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And any person that comes to Christ and responds to him becomes a new person, a new creation. That's everybody. See, the individual to the collective, the individual to the collective, declared righteous, standing right before God, accepted, highly favored in the beloved. And every person has a purpose and a plan by God. So how does God see us then? He sees the individual. He invites you to a life-giving relationship with him. And he loves you enough to put you in a family of God. That's his will for you. And in the context of the church, that's how you're going to grow. In the church family, we're going to talk about some of the words God uses for that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, we see that we are individually and collectively called to a cause that is so much greater than ourselves. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. And read this with me. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. That's you. That's me. That's us. This is the us we're talking about. So the church is the collective people of God. They are the one 
that have responded to him. And he just places us. We're all so different. Have you ever seen a more diverse place than the church of Jesus Christ? It's wonderful. And when we gather around the throne in heaven, it says every tribe, every nation, every people, every language there. Oh, how wonderful. How inclusive is our God. Amen. So Romans 12 verse uh, 4 and 5 says, Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Oh, are you getting the drift of this? You see where I'm going. So he sees us collectively. And I, I have, like I cook too much, I prepare too much. So I am going to really zip through these scriptures and kind of cherry pick, but they'll come up on the screen. You'll see where it's at and you'll get my drift of it. But there are that many instances in the New Testament of how God sees us as a church. And I've chosen six, and I bet you can think of more. If you can think of more, tell me after church. I want to know because I know there's more. But this is where we're going. We're going to see the weight of scripture of the importance that God places on the collective believers together. Loves us as individuals, but it's the collection that he is really pushing and pulling for us and that he loves so much and that he depends on us to be his voice, to be his witness in the earth. So number one, you know this one very well, the body of Christ. We we probably say that more than any other. And every person is integral. Every person is necessary as a part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12, 18, and 27. Really, the whole chapter, um, Christ is like a single body and has many parts. It's still one body, even though it is made up of different parts. And verse 16, every part in the body, just as he wanted it to be, that's where he's put us. He's placed us. All of us are Christ's body. The second thing he sees us collectively as living stones, stones that are alive. I don't know if Cornelius is today here, but he, he's a stonemason. I don't know if you've ever seen a living stone, but that's who we are. You're looking at us right now. So we are being built together to something. God is using each stone and making a hole. So we lay bricks here in Australia. We see that all the time, that it's not just a pile of bricks random, but when they're taken into the skilled hands of a bricklayer or a stonemason, something is built. Something useful is built and all the wonderful things it can be. So 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, we come to him. That's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves as the living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Number three, you are God's special people, a chosen nation, holy, a king of kings and priests. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 there. You see the, the verse up there. And that you were chosen uh, out of darkness to proclaim the glorious gospel, the marvelous light. Verse 10 says, at one time you were not God's people, but now you are his people. At one time you did not know God's mercy, but now you have received his mercy. And Peter, when he uh, went, was called to go to the centurion uh, in Caesarea, to the Roman centurion, he was very much like, I don't know, you know, these Gentiles know. You know, God had to give him a direct revelation. And in Acts chapter 10, he said, actually he had to defend himself to the other apostles when he came back. And he said, now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation. 
Hallelujah. Every nation. The person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. So God sees the whole of us. And he is drawing people from all over the planet into the kingdom of God. And collectively, we are the church in the earth. Number four, he sees us as the flock under the great shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25, you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Number five, you are the bride of Christ. And we have Ephesians chapter five that we quote all the time about husbands loving their wives. But Paul is saying, this is the church. He, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In Revelations chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride. That, that's the redeemed. And the bride has prepared herself. And verse 8 says, She has been permitted to dress in fine linen, dazzling white and clean, for the fine linen signifies the righteous acts of the saints, the ethical conduct, personal integrity, moral courage, and godly character of believers. That's his bride. That's who he's coming for. That's who we are right now in the earth. And then lastly, number six, a family. We are the household of faith. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So do you see what a great thing you are a part of? And have we given enough attention to this? Do we value the people of God? Because that's how the scripture says we're to defer and prefer and to love and all the things that we could think about that we'd want for ourselves, we should want for one another. How important is the gathering of God's people? How important is it that you add your part to the collective whole and rather than holding it back? It's important. It's really important. Okay, so how do we place more value on this great truth? How do we work to pursue great unity in the church? And as the time is ticking on, I'll move quickly. First of all, we have fervent love for Jesus and for one another. And fervent means to be burning hot and glowing. Uh, It's having warmth and intensity of spirit and emotion to enthusiastically love each other. Not rather than, oh, you know, I don't want to sit over there because that person's always, you know. But we love each other, okay? We don't always get on perfectly, but we love each other. And Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 and five, through 5 is, speaks to us so much. But he says, this is Jesus talking to a church, by the way, a collective church. <laughs> you have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And so he's, and he goes on to say, you've left. You've left. And so if we leave, we can come back, right? So we can return to that. Absolutely. And the second thing we do is we protect the unity of the church family, locally and globally. We don't take pot shots at people. We don't sit there with criticism. We don't chime in with the media and the critics. But instead, we guard each other. We, and it's not automatic. It's something that we have to do on purpose. And John chapter 17 was what we really know as the Lord's Prayer when Jesus prayed for us. It'll come up on the screen. I can't read it all. But as we get down to verse 29, I'll read, it says, or 23, I in them and you are in me, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Our love becomes our witness. The way we preserve unity and togetherness. Now, you know, cer- certainly protection is not cover up because 
we, if there's something that needs to be, you know, brought out into the open, something that needs to have repentance, something that needs to have restoration, that has to happen. Of course it is, but we do it in love. Amen. So our worship and our witness, our testimony to the world hinges on the unity that we share. And so we should love each other in spite of our differences. We don't always agree doctrinally with every church movement in the earth, but 2,000 years of history of people that have been followers of Jesus has to be respected, has to be admired, has to be loved. It's diverse. It's cultural. It's all kinds of things. But, you know, you've got to find that commonality in Christ and protect that unity for each other. There's 117 times in the New Testament the word one another phrase, one another, is used. That's saying something, isn't it? So we're to cherish each other, have tender hearts. 1 Peter 3, 8 says, be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted, and keep a humble attitude. Ephesians 4, verses 3 and 4, make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together in peace. So you may hear a bad report sometimes, prominent speakers, leaders, churches. We hear it all the time. What should our response be? I'm sorry we hear it so much. I'm sad we hear it so much. But it's, it, it can't be, oh, yeah, I kind of thought that guy was off. You know, it should be, oh, Lord, that breaks my heart. Grieve for it. You know, I'm, we certainly feel that as leaders in the church of God. When we hear that, it just breaks our hearts. And we need to pray for them that they'd be restored and that healing would come. And, and it, it, you know, you've got the keyboard warriors sitting there that have a platform they don't deserve just because they have a computer. And they can type out stuff and trash and vile and you not know, even use their real name and say things that are destructive. Don't be one of them. Don't be a part of that group. But be those that pray and love and hold together in one mind and one heart. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and lastly, how do we preserve the unity is to become of one mind. Agreeing with each other is not necessarily around doctrinal truths. Uh, I mean, we have, to, we have to agree on the main things, the major things that make us Christians. But other things there's room for. So to be of one mind doesn't mean I'm going to seek until I find people that think like me. Well, you might go through church after church after church so you come down to this little handful of people that you could find that think like you because I would dare say in this room, not everybody thinks alike. So we can't have the one mind be that we all think alike. The one mindedness is that we all have the same love for Jesus and that we have the same attitude as Jesus, which is humility. That's how we become one-minded together in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Mm, can I just read it all? I'm, I'm finishing. I'm rounding the bend. I'm going to just read it all. Don't play. <laughs> it's like the Oscars when they do that and they want you to sit down. Is there any encouragement from becoming to belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Well, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress each other. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus had. And what did he have? 
He did not, even though he was equal with God, he did not remain that equality, but he humbled himself. He became, he left heaven and all the glory that was his, and he came to earth, born as a man. He died a criminal's death on the cross in obedience to God's plan. He humbled and humbled and humbled again. But we know the end. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every shall, shall confess that he is Lord. <laughs> Humility annihilates entitlement. So let's just stay humble. You don't have to know too much. Just stay humble. Teeb, you can come up now and yes, you can play. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I want to just conclude with some decisions. I think it's time to make some decisions. And how are you going to press into to this truth? What are you going to do with it? How, how do, what step do you need to take to be more of the whole? Maybe you've been a little bit standing outside of the fire. You know, maybe you've been in the shadows. And, and maybe there's been some things that have happened that you truly need to get worked through so that you can enter in more fully. They say, we want you here. We want to embrace you and all you are and everything that needs to be fixed or whatever. You're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And that's fine. Just come. Be a part. Maybe you attend only online. Maybe it's time to come in person. And for all those that are here today, I'm glad you're here. I really am. But what if we kind of up that and go, you know, I'm going to be here every week. Because I need to be in the house of God. And I need to be with God's people. And what's more, I might even take a step into community. Maybe you're supposed to volunteer for a team. Maybe you're supposed to join a connect group. And our connect groups are growing. We have more leaders launching, more groups happening. Even amongst our worship team, there's connect groups growing. So we need that community. We need each other. And I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you need to be like John Wesley. And you say, well, I just don't know where to start. And that serious man that gave him that wise information said to him, Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song that's um, Live Like Jesus. I call it More of You and Less of Me. And, but we'll sing that together, and we'll stand to our feet. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Father, I just pray that you help us live more like Jesus. Lord, we want to be like you in every way, personally, individually, but Lord, collectively. Father, we want the world to see that we are one in unity, that our love for one another is real and fervent and enthusiastic. And Lord, we repent of any criticism that might have in our hearts. Lord, I pray you heal us if we've been hurt we become jaded or judgmental. Lord, I pray you'll help us. Lord, we come to your plan. We submit ourselves to your word and your way and what you have decided for us to be as the people of God, your representatives on earth. Oh, Jesus, work through us in your name. Amen. Amen.